0: Welcome to Louisiana Considered. On a Wednesday, I'm Adam Voss, just ahead on today's show, Facts and Misinformation. That's the name of a course being taught at Loyola University in New Orleans. It's part of an effort to teach how to discern fact from fiction, news from opinion, and how to identify fake news. We'll speak with a professor about the importance of media literacy. Also ahead, we'll hear what net metering is and how it relates to homeowners in the South investing in renewable energy like solar. But first, public safety leaders in Baton Rouge earlier this month unveiled part of a local law enforcement and public safety initiative. The Page Rice camera program has set out to place surveillance cameras in high crime areas. It's all part of the greater Safe BR coalition, a broader effort to tackle crime in the capital city. And to tell us more, we have Adam Knapp, President and CEO of the Baton Rouge Area Chamber. Welcome to Louisiana Considered, Adam.
1: Well, thank you, Adam.
0: First, can you outline the basic issues, the background, the why behind this initiative? Everyone wants to be safe in their city, of course. What's making this initiative a priority
1: now? So I think this started for me and and some of the other folks who helped kick it off from a lot of Companies in Baton Rouge, small businesses, uh, philanthropists who said, we see violence and we, we worry that we can't do anything to help our city and, and, our, and our hearts hurt and we want to do more. What can we do to help? And it started from that conversation probably six months ago that has spawned into uh, a way that, frankly, any citizen, nonprofit uh, or partner agency can can work together in, in a collaborative framework. And that's what we call Safe BR. Um, the website safebr.org um, was just launched about three weeks ago as a way to to promote these kinds of ways that folks can come together, um, both to share information um, as well as to think of ways that they can attach to and be involved in different things related to public safety. And so this is a way for kind of... Uh, community-based kind of crowdsourcing of getting involved around issues of public safety. Uh, And what we're really hoping to do is make sure this is very focused on community-based initiatives and or policy areas of work or supports for law enforcement. All these are categories that have come up as things that might be helpful in addressing violence.
0: Yeah, so although the term law enforcement is mentioned here, it's not all about enforcement. And it sounds like there's kind of a a broad base of the community. Can you tell me what kind of organizations and businesses are involved in Some examples of what they can do, what they're planning to do to help.
1: So everyone who's joined has their own perspective or area of concern. Uh, Secondly, how they can be involved. And then third, they may have a specific place they want to contribute. And so the goal is to help use this as a framework to bring those together. Um, Some examples of the kinds of organizations that have signed up, nonprofits, businesses, and philanthropists, Uh, religious or faith-based organizations then kind of governmental or law enforcement agencies. But we hope significantly there will be a a mechanism for philanthropy to be organized, to be able to put resources to needs both for neighborhoods, uh, for communities of need, as well as challenges that might help address uh, specific areas of violence, issues and concerns raised by law enforcement. You mentioned part of the program involves installing
0: these crime cameras, these surveillance cameras, especially in North Baton Rouge Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: So we um, came across uh, a nonprofit in New Orleans called Project NOLA. And Project NOLA has been doing work all over the country, as it turns out, not just in New Orleans, to help put in place very high-quality precision public safety cameras or crime cameras. I I know a lot of folks would be familiar with, you know, maybe the doorfront uh, ring camera or one of these kinds of things that you might install uh, from a local hardware store or something. These are what what law enforcement have told us are kind of the gold standard of public safety cameras. But most impressively, it's directly fed into the Baton Rouge Police Department Real Time Crime Center and into the Sheriff's Crime Information Center. What's really interesting um, and why it's named the Page Rice Camera Initiative um, is after uh, Devin Page, uh, who is. Uh, shot uh, in North Baton Rouge at an incident that had there been a camera installed near where the triple S grocery is on Foster, uh, it could have provided evidence to find Devin's killer. Similarly uh, for Allie Rice on Government Street, uh, had there been a camera on Government Street at that specific location, it might have been able to provide evidence in the middle of the night when that occurred. These are one of the examples of ways that any business can participate, any individual can participate. You can Purchase a camera for your own business, or you can request a camera for your neighborhood or your for your apartment complex or for, um, you know, an area you're concerned with. And then donations can help go and provide for those. And one of the things that our team is attempting to do is to reach out to small businesses near uh, violent hotspots to see if there are small businesses who would be willing to have a camera installed if it's paid for by donations from the community.
0: And Page and Rice, those are in relatively recent memory here in Baton Rouge.
1: They are, and it was very emotional that their families offered to let their names be used as part of this. And I think we all work in the spirit of, of respect and honor that that's something that is uh, a, a way for us all collectively to try to pay it forward to the memory of, of uh, their losses of life.
0: We're speaking with Adam Knapp, President-CEO of the Baton Rouge Area Chamber, one of the organizations that are partners in the Safe BR program. And this isn't all about the cameras. Tell me about what else is behind this initiative? Tell me what angles you hope to take to tackle crime in Baton
1: Rouge. For sure. So, um, a number of them. Uh, one, we we know that r- related to public safety, law enforcement and you know the mayor's office have been working on a number of coalition initiatives. And as they surface, some of those are better served to have philanthropy help support some of these nonprofit organizations that are involved in trying to to curb violence or provide community supports. And so this is partly to help try to make sure that philanthropy is aware of and involved in trying to support those needs. The second thing is we've observed that there are policy challenges that could occur. So uh, if we hear from our police and sheriff that they have significant challenges with a a backlog of DNA evidence, and we can go and be advocacy partners to go to the state legislature or the governor's office ask for assistance to try to reduce the backlog of of getting through DNA evidence, which is a a barrier that they've encountered. As just another example, we also are looking at things that could be done that would address, uh, for example, legal challenges for uh, folks who bond out, who are violent and have a a track record of violence, and then reoffend. Questions that have come up that relate to whether how we do that in Louisiana or in Baton Rouge is, is being done the same way as other communities. And so... We've been interested in understanding what, what are the right approaches or things to address these challenges, and they should be evidence-based. And so our goal is to be kind of collaborative and uh, and also kind of a clearinghouse of ideas.
0: How do you bolster the the resources for law enforcement without law enforcement going too far? Um, how does SafeBR address privacy concerns, worries about over-enforcement, uh, law enforcement disproportionately targeting certain disenfranchised communities? Sure.
1: So the... the Good news is I think there's a lot of progress has been made in law enforcement over the last uh, five years. And we've been observing that that has been helpful, I think, to to help build a culture uh, of awareness and visibility. And I think that's something that is important is that those reforms that have been made inside of law enforcement are seen and felt and heard in in communities that have been uh, significantly affected by and concerned by over enforcement uh, in the past. I think what we've seen is also that there's a desire to see relationship development uh, with law enforcement. And if that's something that this organization from the outside can help be a bridge builder for um, kind of building connections that make it more likely that communities feel like they can have a conversation with law enforcement in an in a open space or in a safe space, that we can be a part of that. And third is, is how that then crosses into education, too, uh, and that there's an, a need perhaps to make sure that this is happening in public education or as folks um, at a community-based level want to have encounters or ways to engage with law enforcement. So I think you're going to see a number of those kinds of examples as ways that trust is built or rebuilt uh, at a community level.
0: And I want to ask you, you mentioned some of the fundraising, and some might ask, well, public safety, isn't that something that should be publicly funded? Shouldn't our tax dollars be paying for this? Shouldn't it be oh, supported yeah. by that? And here we are raising money for it. Can you tell me what the balance is there? Can you tell me um, why we're looking for private fundraising to help with public safety?
1: So it's uh, important to, to speak to that, I think, um most of the challenges, I think, are going to have to be public funding sources to solve those. For example, if we see that you know our, our district attorney's office or our sheriff's department or our BRPD are lower salaries typically than we've seen in some neighboring jurisdictions, the advocacy and research and analysis might, might come from support from the outside and, and from analysis that's been done on the inside of these agencies – but to then build a coalition of partners who can advocate for those investments is something that I think is, is important. Uh, and, and we want to do that as part of this work. Um, I'd say that uh, we're building this you know, plane as we're, as we're just taking off. Um, the philanthropy helps to really fill in gaps, especially on new initiatives. Uh, or community-based projects that really may not be a perfect fit for governmental funding. And so I think what we've seen in examples of public-private partnerships is that there are moments when philanthropy can bring in uh, outside partners or be a little bit more nimble uh, to start new initiatives. And that's where the, the philanthropy, we think, is going to play a role. Uh, the goal for this organization is to make sure that there's a lot of good analysis and thinking about what those might be that we need to make sure philanthropy is directing resources toward.
0: We've been speaking with Adam Knapp, President and CEO of the Baton Rouge Area Chamber. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Adam. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. Mississippi was one of the last states in the nation to adopt net metering rules. Those rules make it easier for homeowners to invest in renewable energy like solar. The state recently updated its rule book with incentives for low and moderate income residents. But as Danny MacArthur of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, environmental justice advocates are still pushing for more.
2: Nearly seven years ago, Leah Campbell and her husband, Matt, decided to install solar panels on their home in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. This is the south facing slope of the roof. It gets direct sun. This creates energy that they get to sell back to their power company.
1: In the size home that we have, our power bills were really high.
2: And so we wanted to see if that would be a way that we could reduce our energy bill. The Campbells did that because several months before, Mississippi created its first set of net metering guidelines. Basically a rule book for people who want to use renewable energy and stay plugged into the public power grid. It lays out the specific rate that homeowners can get for producing their own power.
1: With the net metering, we
2: saw our energy bill reduced by at least a half. It sounds great, but fast forward to today, and there are fewer than a 1,000 homes that use renewable energy in Mississippi. Installing solar can cost several thousand dollars. We're fortunate in that we were able to afford being able to finance it, install it, but a lot of Mississippians just can't. Now, the Mississippi Public Service Commission has revised that net metering rulebook and added some new incentives. But critics say the rates the state set for compensating people who generate their own power are enticing enough to make them want to participate. So why are Mississippi's rates so conservative? Commissioner Brent Bailey says the new model for net metering in Mississippi was based on things they saw in the other Gulf states.
1: And we hope that those lessons learned from other jurisdictions and states can be applied here, and that's something we intend to do.
2: In Mississippi, your hour of solar energy is typically worth less than that hour would cost if you bought it off the grid. In some states, like Arkansas, it's a one-to-one trade-off. Every hour of energy you create offsets an hour of energy you might have consumed from the grid.
1: So that's one end of the spectrum in the South. And then of course, there are states like Alabama that really, in some would say, creates disincentives.
2: In Alabama, homeowners are actually taxed for solar power they generate. And while Mississippi didn't go that far, Bailey says they also didn't want to go down the route Louisiana took. At one point, the Pelican state had generous incentives for its net metering customers, but those were gutted in 2019. Bailey says it had a roller coaster impact on businesses, homeowners, and the solar economy in Louisiana.
1: While we may not have the most aggressive set of rules as some would like to have seen, uh, we certainly have a set of rules that I think will help you know support the industry as it grows.
2: Some of the new rules target low to moderate income Mississippians. Those customers get reimbursed at a slightly higher rate and they get a one-time incentive of $3,000.
1: And there's no way that they can afford to uh, invest
3: in a $20,000 solar project with a $3,000 incentive.
2: That's Glenn Cobb. He's a community advocate in Gulfport who says the state's new rules don't go far enough. Cobb thinks communities should create their own solar programs.
1: That would bring down the cost that we are paying for energy right now.
2: One group, the STEPS Coalition, is working to develop a community solar farm in the Mississippi Gulf Coast area. The costs and savings can be spread out among hundreds of residents. Jonathan Green is the executive director of the coalition. He says the current rules make it expensive to get the project off the ground, in part because it costs a lot of money to connect to the public power grid. So at the end of the day, we've got to have some successful models. In the state, and I think that once we can stand up some successful models, then we'll start to see momentum. And Green says they'll keep pushing residents to stay engaged, especially low-income Mississippians. They spend more of their income on their power bills than residents of any other state. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur,
0: and the Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Loyola University in New Orleans is working on educating its students and its community about the importance of media literacy, knowing how to discern fact from fiction, news from opinion, and how to identify fake news, among other skills. Lori Phillips is Associate Dean of Information Resources and Systems at the Monroe Library at Loyola University. She teaches a course called Facts and Misinformation. Lori, thank you for being here today. Happy to. So how does Loyola educate its students about media literacy?
3: For the most part, um, these are things that we introduce through what we call one-shot instruction um, that librarians do. There's a lot of that kind of thing, which I think is, is effective in some ways. But what I do is a little bit deeper. Um, It's really about being able to evaluate sources of all kinds, both news and uh, scholarly resources. But also, you know, how do you determine whether something is credible, whether it's biased, all of that kind of thing. So we get a chance to go a little deeper. Um, So the campaign that our Bateman team is working on is with the News Literacy Project. And they're working on how we can educate both journalism students which is kind of interesting about this about how they report and using good sources but then also about the general population of college students my students have actually said that they feel like it would be better if students got this younger but i have also encountered this in the general population in older folks who are interested in learning more about how to be discerning about the news i've done some things with my church done things with holy name school With the youth group at my church. And so I've kind of worked a little bit with all ages, but what I primarily teach is 18 year olds.
0: Hmm. You mentioned educating adults, not just current college students. You know, media has definitely evolved quite a bit, and the way people consume media and get information has changed quite a bit, even in the past decade. So if you took this course 10 years ago, had it been offered, uh, the media has changed since then. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
3: Well, as I talk about with my students, you know, it used to be, you know, you were, if you were in the grocery store line with your mom and you saw Weekly World News or – um something like that, you could tell that it was fake. But it's so much harder to discern that when everything is just online. When we would open up a print newspaper, it says it's the editorial page, it says it's opinion, as opposed to it's a lot harder to discern when you just come across an article out of context, and you're trying to figure out whether it's fact, analysis, opinion, or just plain old conspiracy.
0: How do you communicate the importance of being a critical consumer of Media in today's ecosystem. You know, I I assume this isn't a required course yet. No. uh, But um, (laughs) you have to, you know, convince students hey, this is an important course to take. Here's why it's interesting. Here's why it'll help you. Uh, How do you communicate that?
3: Well, it's interesting because they don't necessarily choose my class um, because it's a first year (laughs) seminar. But um, I think that many of them are just interested in how this can inform their research and understanding of news um, and sources throughout their college careers, and in fact, becoming lifelong learners. So I think, you know, being able to discern the difference of, you know, say, reading about um, especially health news and climate and where it's being skewed by political bias or just being reported on for a general audience and where we can believe things and not believe things. I mean, those are the kinds of things that are important for our lives. For example, you know, are we going to vaccinate for COVID? And what are the reasons why we would or wouldn't choose to do that? And what are the expectations? Those are the kinds of things that as adults, we have to make those decisions and we have to know how to discern.
0: So teaching people about media literacy, how does that vary? Or maybe the question is, how is it similar to teaching people about how to do research, how to use the library? Tell me about, you know, the things that are in common there about judging the quality of information that you get from sources when those sources aren't just contemporary media.
3: Well, I am a librarian. So (laughs) absolutely, uh, there is crossover. Um, And I think that The difference between, say, my course and sort of a straight news literacy course is that we do cover scholarly materials and how sources are used in scholarly materials and how people get their authority to write about something and where this fits in the timeline. I mean, that's one of the hardest things to teach students is where does this fit in the timeline of information about a topic? And that matters both in scholarship and in news. But um, it's not so different than you might think. The other thing is about how we search, the different search terms, depending on whether you're searching Google or searching a library database What is the data that you're actually searching and how does that work? So that's one of the things that I teach because how you find things depends on how you look them up.
0: It sounds like the membrane between scholarly research and being consumers of media might be a little bit more permeable than people might think.
3: I think that's absolutely true. And um, it's been very interesting to me in teaching this course, The Cross, where scholarly studies are being reported on by the news media and how that works and um, and understanding the difference between reading the actual study and reading a story about it or where you're hearing about it third hand for example and it, it just completely could skew what those researchers found and how they represented their um, their research.
0: What would you have to say about the role of this kind of education in preparing active participants in democracy?
3: Well, I think it's absolutely important, especially the political stuff. I mean, it, teaching students about, you know, when you're being manipulated about to one side or the other and it happens on both sides. Um in terms of language and who's being quoted and how are they being quoted and you know, what sources do they use to back up their information?
0: You told me about teaching your students, well, here's how you Google something. Can you tell me more about what all the tools are that you tell students to use to judge information?
3: Great. So um, we look at who is the audience? We're talking about, is this a general lay audience or is it for professionals? Is it for scholars? Understanding that is, is one of the most important things, like who is this directed toward? And that helps them in understanding what's, you know, what's scholarly, what's news, what's kind of general audience. Is it fact analysis opinion? Is it a mix? What makes a good mix? And really, generally, it's fact with some analysis and context. Where does the author get his or her expertise? Where is the author's bias or point of view or perspective? Where are they coming from on the topic and can you tell? What is the publication's bias and point of view? Um, What is the language used? Is the language persuasive to get you to believe the point of view of the author or the publication? Is there a match of headline and content? As I mentioned, what is the timeliness? Where does it fit in the timeline of information on the topic? Do the illustrations match the content of the article? Do they support the author's point? Are they inflammatory or are they misleading? So do they use sources? What sources do they use? How does that affect their credibility? Who is quoted? What's their authority? Are they credible? Is it inflammatory or taken out of context? So those are the ways we look at it.
0: Lori Phillips, Associate Dean of Information Resources and Systems at the Monroe Library at Loyola University. Lori teaches a course called Facts and Misinformation. Thank you for your time today on Louisiana Considered. Thank you. And a thank you to today's guests on Louisiana Considered, Adam Knapp of the Baton Rouge Area Chamber, Danny MacArthur reporting for the Gulf States Newsroom, and of course, Lori Phillips of Loyola University. Our managing producer is Lana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Mondays through Fridays at noon and 730 in the evening. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening.
3: Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.